Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Robert Buckingham, and on behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation and M Pavilion, I'd like to welcome you all tonight to this very special occasion, um, a very special in conversation. Uh, we would also uh, like to acknowledge the Boonarong people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet, and pay our respects to the land and to their elders past and present. Um, as you know, Na as you know, M Pavilion is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation, and each year um, a temporary uh, pavilion is built on this site. This is our third. This one, of, of course, is designed by B Joy Jane of Studio Mumbai, and then the pavilion is gifted to the city of Melbourne and relocated. Um, it's also the M Pavilion project is also probably the largest public-private partnership in Australia. And our major partners are the City of Melbourne, uh, the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria and the ANZ. Um, M Pavilion, as I said, involves not only the commissioning of a new temporary pavilion each year, um, but also an extensive and discursive program of, of events over our four-month season. So this is one of our last. We close on the 18th. Um, and it's very exciting to have so many here. There have been nearly 400 or over 400 events and 94,000 visitors to M Pavilion this season. Tonight, um, we take great pleasure in welcoming the acclaimed British architect, Sir David R.J. OBE, who recently was knighted in the New Year's Honours uh, list for his services to architecture and recognition of his role as a global cultural ambassador for the UK. Sir David established AJ Associates in 2000 and has received ever-increasing worldwide attention as one of the leading architects of his generation. The firm has offices in London and New York and has completed work in Europe, North America, the Middle East, Asia and Africa. He is a major figure in contemporary architecture and his work has been described variously as spaces that foster links about people. Um, explorations of how neighbourhoods evolve and how new communities are created. Architecture where unexpected junctures weave diverse urban identities. And also rethinking conventions, his designs speak to the specific time and place in which they were made. These ideas are expressed in, an, in important recent projects such as, the, such as the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. In 2015, I was lucky enough to see an exhibition of Sir David's work at the Haus der Kunst in Zurich and his collaboration with the director of the Venice Biennale that year. Both expressed Sir David's love of experiment experimentation with materials, his diverse responses to cultural context and his great interest in collaborating with artists. So tonight, I'm thrilled to welcome Sir David to discuss his ideas on architecture and broad interests in contemporary culture with Melbourne's own, Michael Williams. As you know, Michael is the director of the Melbourne's uh, Wheeler Centre for Books and Writing, the world's first public institution dedicated to the discussion and practice of books, writing and ideas. Please welcome Sir David Ajay and Michael Williams. Mm. 
there's a basic rule of thumb in these things not to have one's own biographical details read out after Sir David Arjay's because um, you're never going to come across looking that impressive one way or the other. Uh, Sir David doesn't really need an introduction and Robert's done such a splendid job of doing it. Uh, Springsteen didn't get an introduction when he went out on stage uh, here in Melbourne earlier this week and in architectural terms I don't think Springsteen's too big a leap for you David. Um, I just wanted to echo uh, Robert's acknowledgement of country and the fact that we're on the lands of the Kulin Nation. It seems extraordinary, extraordinary to me that this temporary pavilion does such a beautiful job of being a gathering point for people to come together and talk and to kind of recognise the community to which they belong. And of course it happens on a place where that's happened for many years and many generations. And it would do us well in Australia to view some of our bigger edifices as temporary structures that have popped up on stories from the past. Uh, acknowledgement of countries in part for me, an acknowledgement that uh, the moral and legal implications of invasion remain unresolved to this day. And I think it's, uh, it's important to remember it and to have our conversations happen on that basis. David, there are so many places where I'd like to begin our conversation, but I thought that given we're in this beautiful structure uh, that comes from Bijoy Jane and uh, Studio Mumbai, it might be worth beginning by talking about Charles Carrera career, because I know that uh, you cite him as an influence, and I, I'm just wondering why he's a significant figure for you. Thank you. Um, it's really amazing to be here, and it's great that you're all out here on this wonderful early evening. Um, you can say cold if you like. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell which place I'm from. <laughs> um, Charles Correa is one of those incredible figures of the 20th century, and, and in a, I think He's a figure that is not about the canon of the, you know, necessarily about the sort of the invention of a kind of new construction type or, you know, um, that sort of that sort of traditional architect that is a kind of craftsman building. But he's a he's a he's an architect that kind of seizes a kind of moment in a world that is changing and uses uses architecture to create an extraordinary kind of image for a nation. Um, and really, he, he comes, he's birth, you know, he, he arrives when India gains independence and becomes the, the architect that really imagines a modern world for, and you know, Oscar Niemeyer is in that camp, and I went to see him and have great, had great affection for him. Um, and it's, it was interesting to me because it, these are the, there are characters like that, maybe even Kenzo Tangi in Japan, um, Jeffrey Bauer, um, these are architects who, kind of sees a certain uh, moment and also understand that not necessarily, you know, I mean, there's a big thing of nation building, but also there's the kind of moment of a, a cultural shift and find a way to make form, to make sense to um, the community, to the citizens, to the nation. They have a particular relationship to questions of national identity and heritage and the role they should play in architectural practice, though, yeah. don't they? I mean, that yeah. identity question is a big part of it. Yes, and I, I think with somebody like Charles, um, you know, after the sort of the colonial construction of India, um, the, dis the kind of discovery of an Indian modernity, um, we now know that the notion of a kind of modernity is not singular anymore. There are, there are kind of eruptions of multiple modernities and... And now, you know, it's the job of history to kind of understand how they kind of all sort of happened in their different moments, especially in the 20th century. I think the 20th century probably is a kind of extraordinary moment that is still 
going to need a lot of work to understand the, the sort of modernities that occurred all around the world. And I think um, um, this idea of kind of constructing, and it's just the beginning, um, uh, uh, an identity which moves away from a singular trajectory to something that starts from different positions is what's really interesting. You epitomize that idea that architecture is a truly international uh, endeavor that you have to be able to pick it up and take it to other places and apply it and understand other traditions. So what's that link between your own past and identity as an architect and adapting the work you do for new environments when you get there? I, I, I sort of have to correct you slightly. I don't think architecture is something you pick up and take to other places. I think that there is a kind of, there's a fundamental, of course, universal that we are human beings, we're sentient beings and we have a kind of, um, there's a history of habitation which maybe goes back 10,000 years. Um, and so that's a shared collective idea as a species. But, um, but I think that I'm more interested in the notion of, international is a kind of political word in a way. For me, I'm interested in a planetary, um, the architecture is a planetary discourse that has kind of evolved on different geographies in a way that different geographies have evolved on the planet as it's kind of formed and that was in that moment that we're in. And that in a way I'm very interested in the idea that as human beings, we can engage in these different geographies and histories. Um, and the pleasure of architecture is that engagement rather than the imposition. So I'm interested in that very much. I mean, obviously these are questions that inform in a very big way yeah. um, the major project that you completed that was open in September of last year, and um, to be in charge of putting the full stop on the National Mall in Washington seems to me to be a momentous thing in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. Before we get into some of the specifics of that building and that project, though, how did you feel approaching it as essentially an outsider? Because um, obviously that's a sensitive point. <laughs> no, it's... um. It's a, it's a wonderful point to have a conversation about links um, because, yes, from the outside it looks um, like one is an outsider, but you realise how um, many histories and many trajectories have overlaps and have relationships um, that sometimes don't seem obvious. I think with the African-American community, Africa is actually the elephant in the room. You know? um, and it's interesting because there's a circular kind of uh, narrative that's uh, very important to understand. One is that, of course, the extraction that happens with slavery sort of begins that trauma. Um, it resides in America. It mutates, it hybridizes. The African-American community is a kind of diaspora that's hybridized in America. Um, and then they fight for a cause which I think to understand it fully is to understand the beginnings of human rights consciousness, but it's really through the lens of a kind of a discourse about the oppression of people um, and the subjugation of people. So in a way, um, the civil rights really opens up a canon which becomes a universal canon in a sense, in terms of its discourse, but then also becomes a device to open up the revolutionary um, and independence movements in Africa. So really the civil rights then becomes the kind of mirror that opens up the continent of Africa to kind of understanding its own identity and its own. So I'm born, at that cusp of that independence movement. Um, I was born in 66, 
my father is steeped in that sort of discourse. And by default, you know, I'm brought into that discourse and understanding a kind of modernity or the beginnings of a modernity through the lens of the African-American experience. So I grew up not seeing that history as something foreign, but as a complete direct extension of um, my own existence and a way to understand my modern uh, nature as a black male in the world through that lens, because in a way the African lens um, for that modernity is still sort of happening. So the American lens is a very important one to understand the complexity of the, the world. Um, so in a way, it's interesting how that creates a kind of wonderful loop yeah. um, of a sort of relationships and, and dialogue. So in a way, there's a kind of strong... So when I come to the subject of dealing with the museum, I don't feel like I'm an outsider. I feel very um, inspired by the, by the content, and I want to... And also I feel very... Um, I feel very, uh, I think what was interesting about doing the competition is I was so blindly clear about what I was interested in doing. And then when we found out that we won, that was actually the moment where it's like, oh my God, you're going to have to build this thing. <laughs> um, so it's interesting how the passion starts, maybe not from, you know, with that project, not from just reading a brief and doing research, but really it was a kind of lifelong thing. But does that oh my god moment mean, and I'm not going to like now turn your words back against you, but does that mean for you there's a moment of passion about the idea that comes before the form and the building? Like yeah. that as you approach yeah. any project, the intellectual nature of the project drives you quite independently from the architectural one. I have to admit that that's, um, we do projects because of that. Yeah, it's, it's that intellectual frame. The reason, for me, the reason for making form is very important. I'm not interested in just making form um, because I'm an architect. So the questioning of that is very important. Have you ever been disappointed by one of your projects where the form didn't live up to the idea? <laughs> um, I've been disappointed when um, the relationships haven't worked, and it's happened only a couple of times, thankfully. The yeah. relationships, because those high-stakes intellectual ones tend to have lots of people with opinions? or <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I mean, Robert alluded to it. Yeah. Through your career, a lot mm. of your private work that you've done has been with artists. Yeah. You seem to favour jobs and projects where collaboration is a core part of it, that you're going to be working with people who have very firmly held opinions about everything from the aesthetic to the idea and everything in between. Yeah. I mean, I, I firmly be, I don't know, I'm not sure who coined it, but I think that there is a kind of myth that the architect is the person creating the building, but I really believe it really is a triptych. Um, and I think that the relationship with the person that commissions is so fundamental to the way in which a project is made and also the way in which a, mo a project lives in the world. Um, so I think that that relationship is so profoundly important and is as important as making the building. It's kind of understanding the relationship that you're going to make because in a way as architects, we're really making 0.01% of the built stock that's out there. So I really think that there's a kind of, if you, if you mislead yourself, you think it's just, you know, get a contract, sign, get on with it, push, and it's done. It's really not. Um, if you really want to make buildings, it's actually about relationship building. It's about... It's about um, the way in which certain agencies can be made and to understand the power of what you do as a form maker and also a, a form giver, um, um, 
in a context, in a community, in a society, and I think that's when great architecture is made. So that means there are relationships that can break down, but presumably there are equally relationships that aren't sufficiently rewarding, where you get your own way. I mean, it must be hard as you yeah. as you become more and more exalted, Sir David. Uh, <laughs> A, Are people less inclined to, to push back? Do you, do you need that pushback to do your best work? I think, that, I think that actually architects need constructive resistance. And I mean constructive resistance, not, not, um, not to be obstructive, just to be for the sake of it. And I think that constructive resistance for me means um, opening the architect's eye to things that, are, that we, because of our subject, make ourselves blind to. Mm. You know, it's, it's not... You know, the, the ability of awareness is, is something that is a continual project that you have to work on. And I think that projects take on an elevation when that awareness sort of enters the form making. I think great mm. projects have these illuminations which really come from dialogues with, you know, an, an incredible moment about a certain domestic situation or an incredible moment about the meaning of light in a certain space or an incredible moment about what the structure can symbolize. And those don't come just from the epiphany of the architect, I, I don't believe. I mean, I've never had that moment, so if it, it's out there, I'm sorry to <laughs> sort of poo-poo it, but I really think it comes from that kind of aha moment where you sort of are doing something and then a client, what we call the client, and I find that weird, very weird, but the, the, the sort of your partner in making form um, says, you know, blah, 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 you know, this, this issue, and you go, Ah, oh, I know exactly what that can do. And I think those are, those are the magic moments that I actually, I'm always searching for, and that, that's the resistance that I mean. So it's a kind of a continual sort of, just when you think you have it, there's a kind of check and balance through the kind of process of going through it. That's really and artists are really great at that. <laughs> Why so? But I mean, aren't they speaking a slightly different language? No, because artists are kind of actually are less interested. Well, all the artists I've worked with, they're less interested in the mundane. And they just expect, expect me to know it. Like, they don't want to talk about the bathroom planning or whatever. They're like, that's your job. <laughs> but they are talking about, well, what's the difference between, you know, 30 feet and 10 feet in terms of a studio space? Or, you know, and, and you may have a kind of great proportional ratio that you think is amazing, but may be completely useless to the kind of emotional... And um, you know, you know, literally metric kind of understanding of their practice um, and the way in which they make work, and that's been fascinating to listen to. Sometimes geometries that seem off can be the most inviting geometries for certain practices, um, and also understanding the relationship between what is you know the geometry of the public realm for work and the geometry of the private realm for kind of introversion and 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 kind of reflection or experimentation, et cetera. I wanna, I wanna kind of dig in on a, a concrete example just to tease this out, because sure. it's really interesting to me. We'll come back to the, the museum, I think, a little bit later, but tell me about a project like the Moscow School of Management, for example. How, does, how do you approach something like that? How do you know that's a brief that uh, stimulates you intellectually, and, and how do you kind of go into that? So Moscow, again, Moscow, you would think has no connection to anything, um, but in a way... Slightly, that's why I chose it. <laughs> but Moscow is the space that the independence um, intellectuals from Africa went to, to study, whilst the kind of relationship with America was very difficult in Europe. 
So it was very much an incubation space for understanding different modernities. And in a weird way, so in terms of even family members, I know uncles who talk about Russia in a very different way and can speak Russian um, after spending time there and talk about the kind of intellectual tradition of Russia. Um, so I kind of had that as a, as, a young, as a young boy. And so my relationship with Russia was really about really understanding that this was the country that actually probably erupted the sort of European um, discourse of modernity, you know, um, constructivism uh, was really probably the first moment where, you know, past the Industrial Revolution, there's a kind of rupture that's really critical to the structural thinking. Um, and, it's, and it's mostly in images and it's through artists, but it's, it's systemic and it spreads. Um, so I was really fascinated by that and very fascinated that, that um, sort of African intellectuals that I knew drank from that well and understood that well. Um, so when that building came up, I was fascinated by this idea that these buildings, if you go to Moscow still, they're slowly all disappearing or crumbling away. Um, and it seemed to me such a kind of very sad um, sort of uh, judgment of this extraordinary 20th century um, experiment, which changes the world. If you want to really push it, you can keep going on with that, you know. Um, so I thought when, when the competition was announced and we went for it, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to actually realize one of um, Lezitsky or Tatlin's dreams? <laughs> um, and that really became the brief for me entering the competition rather than, um, there's a business school, um, you know, it has so many rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So actually I've made the presentation making that, I presented that idea that, you know, there was this incredible, you know, the school was trying to kind of create an entropy with um, Russians going to the US or to Europe to train and never coming back and to create an internal ecology where the, the, the sort of learning in Russia would kind of reflect in the communities and also a pivot more towards India and China. So all this was kind of interesting. Um, and this idea of creating a building that could speak to not just a kind of the neoclassical roots of Russia, um, but also speak to its modernity um, and the modernity that influences the way in which we make architecture now seemed really powerful. And of course, it's a school, a place of ideas, which Correct. permeates your work all the way through. That as far as uh, as far as focusing on projects of kind of civic impact, yeah. education and places of learning and ideas seem to be very important to me. Overwhelmingly, what interests you? Um, they they have been from the beginning. Yeah, um, I just think that those. Uh, there's something very important about the, the foundational spaces that create the sort of knowledge base that we all share. Um, and I think that it's, it's important in the spaces, it's important that the, for me, architecture exists in the spaces that influences the future leaders of the world. Mm. But that architecture is not, that I actually think it's really important that critical architecture is, is in those places. And it's really sad for me when it's always, you know, when I was teaching at Princeton, et cetera, it's always the kind of default to go to the Victorian or the Tudor, yeah. you know, and, and it's sort of like, well, those were the radical architectures of that time. If you think of, a, you know, the sort of the architecture of those, those um, sort of neoclassic, neo, neo monuments. So in a way, there's something important about making sure that um, places of education and learning have the manifestation of our thinking about what is important in terms of space, which affects the communities that are going to go out in the world. 
I want to take you to Sugar Hill mm-hmm. and that project, public housing in Harlem. For those in the audience who don't know, set it up. Explain what the project was, what the brief was. Sugar Hill um, is in the east end of Harlem in, on Manhattan Island, the very top, so near the East River. Um, and it's, uh, the project was interesting to me because it was with a, an extraordinary fa- uh, um, sort of charity who basically were both, it came to being really looking at the homeless situation in, um, in Manhattan specifically, but in New York generally as a state, and noticed a trend that there was extraordinary homelessness, but incredibly invisible to the community, to the city, and really took it on board themselves to really take that on. So first they were interested very much in refurbishing existing buildings and turning them into homes for um, homeless people, giving them, you know, saying that the fastest way to kind of deal with this is to give people homes and then to allow them to obviously have addresses, to be able to apply for jobs, et cetera, and get back onto the ladder. Um, and some of the kind of issues to do with the stigma of homelessness was to do with, you know, communities not wanting their presence to be in their area. So what happens is that they, kept, they keep getting swept away until they're sort of out of sight of every community because everybody thinks their house prices are going to go down or whatever else. So um, when they sort of sufficiently rehearsed integrating into communities and not kind of creating that trauma, to then get to a point where the city wanted to give them tax dollars to get involved in housing, providing housing. Um, and so they, they used that first opportunity to do a competition. And for me, that was exciting. Um, it's our first large-scale housing scheme. And I thought that there was something very interesting because it was very much predicated on this idea of what is the first home for somebody who's not had a home for many, many years or not or has just arrived and doesn't have a home. And, um, and what is the nature of this sort of density in a community which has a kind of a, an established pattern? Um, and and how, do you, how do you create layers for not just the housing to occur? You know, we, we entered the competition saying that that housing had to be a little piece of city making. Um, because there were going to be 150, 125 units, 125 families in there. And that was significant enough to require um, not just housing, but a piece of city making. So the dialogue was about how do we engage with the other um, stakeholders in the city to create infrastructure that would kind of create overlap so that there was generational um, sort of visibility in the building and also that there was permeability with the community in the building so that um, the building didn't stand opaque and as a kind of edifice of a certain idea, but kind of created a porosity with the community which would dissolve the stigma of the community that were actually coming into that building and sort of maybe leaving. I'm fascinated by the idea of city making. Was that mm. a project ultimately where the relationships were? I heard you say in an interview that you had to be an optimist because you're an architect. And I'm curious about <laughs> working not, on city making. <laughs> it's, it seems wonderful to me. But surely working on city making in mm. a place like Manhattan, you're constantly met by failures of imagination, failures Completely. of infrastructure. Completely. Uh, how does a project like that meet the standards you set for it when you're so reliant on a failing system elsewhere? Well, what's, what's great is that you know, looking at the Ed Moses sort of housing, one could very quickly point to the failure of density, which is singular and not about city making. So if you think of housing very much as just objects in a kind of bucolic landscape and, you know, you program it, if you're lucky at the luxury level, you might be able to make it work, but generally it fails. 
Um, so this discourse was very present in the minds of the clients and the community. And so when we talked very much about wanting to include, um, uh, you know, a first, a crash, a very significant crash that at least could support the entire building plus the neighborhood. And then really we worked with the client to think about what we could bring to the building, which would um, encourage that porosity that we were discussing. And in the end, um, they invented a storytelling museum for children. And it's, it's literally an invention. It wasn't there. And it, it came about from having dialogues with all the other cultural institutions in which we sort of initiated. Um, and really understanding that there was this, of course, that museums have their you know, children's programs, but actually to make a specific children's museum was something that was kind of missing in the landscape. And that this uh, place could be a space to create that kind of institution um, that would would complement the cultural program that was happening um, elsewhere and create a specific space for learning for children. And so, you know, it was amazing. It took them almost the same time as we were building the building to completely create that institution. And then by the time we finished the building, six months later, they were able to open it. But it created an incredible energy um, with the building because anyway, what we were able to do was to allow other institutions to bring collections for a year to the space. You know, a lot of institutions have a lot of work in storage. So their curators were asked to bring work to the space that would be, the education programs would be made for children around those spaces. And then artists were, artists in an artist in residence was brought in to, to have a studio space for a year, but would work with children. And then um, in a kind of main sort of arena, um, an artist would create a work for six months that narratives would be kind of constructed for the kids. So a very amazing uh, thing. And now it's become a very New York-wide space where kids are bust in and it's really become something very special. So the building has that and then there's urban farms and there's a kind of, you know, the, we didn't want any of the bodegas to be there, you know, the sort of New York thing of the sort of, so there's a kind of, uh, there's a small commercial space but it supports another nonprofit that kind of is helping that sort of community, et cetera. I'm really interested in that kind of engineering of both harnessing the existing character of the community mm. and at the same time trying to find ways to lift up the bits that aren't working. I read a great quote from you saying that gentrification was about improving an area for people who don't live there, whereas what you were interested in was improving the area for the people who did. Correct. Have I, I, I'm sure I'm misquoting you, but it's a good misquote, even if it's a misquote. <laughs> I'll <think>. take it. <laughs> so cities... What are your favourite cities? What cities get it right when it comes oh, to understanding that relationship? We're not going to do this. I, I'm gonna, no, look, the only acceptable answer is Melbourne and, and Sydney like, as a whole. I like, that's all you have to say. And then we're fine. We'll get out. No, what, are, what are the urban projects that really excite you? What are the cities that understand? I mean, you've mentioned modernity several times tonight. I know it's a really important concept to you. Mm -hmm. So then what why are you the asking me this city? question? <laughs> so, so what's the modern city? What's, no. what's the one that is most understanding the need for change? I think that, 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 that cities are a kind of incredible mechanism if you look at it. I've, I've become very fascinated by the phenomenology of cities. Not that I want to become an urban planner or anything like that, but I think that it's actually the background, background sort of, it's the background music that makes you kind of see architecture in a very interesting way. But I think... Cities are things that have a kind of incredible um, cycle and change. And 
you know, there are kind of buzzwords about ecological cities and smart cities and all that sort of stuff. I mean, and those are very important, but I, I, for me, that's not the character, the pulse of the city that I'm necessarily interested in. I'm more interested in the way in which what I'm calling how the informal becomes formal and how kind of things that are non, non-structural become cultural and structural. That sort of, that sort of, and I think that as human beings, we're continually making that, whether it's food culture, that sort of becomes entropy and becomes the kind of signature of the atmosphere of a place. Um, and then sort of design kind of takes it into kind of structural kind of moments or even our relationship to um, each other, to other, you know, to, to others, to, you know, continually. So for me, the dynamic is really how, how fast is that synthesis happening? And that's what I mean by the modernity. Because in a way, I think that that's what makes the city richer. And, in, and what I'm interested in with a city is, is that notion of the atmosphere as an idea of, of the kind of distinction. So cities that have a distinction, for me, are very interesting, rather than cities that work perfectly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't think of any that work perfectly anywhere. So because it doesn't start. exist. But that, there is a lot of talk yeah. about, you know... Now, I, I am completely confident that there are many brilliant minds here in the M Pavilion tonight, and I am going to give you a chance to ask questions of Sir David. So I, I mention this now so that you can start to think about it, you can compose it, you can make it kind of pithy and an actual question rather than a thesis. You, you've got time to dwell on this and get this right before uh, we turn our gaze to you. So uh, consider that a warning. Uh, in about five minutes, I'm going to come to you for questions. Um, let's get to the museum, though. Um, It is an extraordinarily... I cannot wait to get to Washington to see it. It looks like a spectacular building and an incredible achievement. How different is it doing a project that feels like it's so utterly got the weight of history on it when you set out? You're in that space, you're in that mall, you've decided you're not white marble, you're not neoclassical, you want to be something different and distinct but you're putting a full stop on a project that's been going for hundreds of years. Yeah. How do you approach that? Um, with humility, <laughs> but also a certain kind of uh, passion. Um, but I think that the, the project for me really hit the nerve of the things that excited me and actually forced me to make very conscious processes, design processes that I sort of intuitively used in making work. Um, it's nearly been, you know, it's been eight years, it's nearly nearly nine years since that build, that project started. And um, when you're working on something like a, a sort of national mall or a, a national sort of space, I think the reading of history, I mean, the reading of history becomes so profoundly acute and, and, an, and an, under, an understanding of that history as well, an analysis of that history is also incredibly important. I think with the mall, I just became riveted by both the sort of social history, but also the architectural history. Mm. I mean, this is the space where, you know, the neoclassical project was going on until um, um, Gordon Bunshaft more or less disrupted the entire thing with a cylinder um, um, in the middle of the mall sort of palaces. Um, And then SOM in later editions made a kind of neoclassical sort of return. And then IMP made another disruption. So I... You know, I look at it and I would say that there are these, there are, so in the 20th century, there are these narratives that already are happening, oscillating between a sort of conservatism and a kind of break. And um, 
in a way, I sort of felt like it was my duty to triangulate what Pei and Gordon Bunch have to have done. Yeah. <laughs> so the project, in a way, responds, of course, to the kind of urbanism of the form, but really is having a very specific dialogue with those two buildings. Mm. So I think to understand, just talking about it purely architecturally, to understand the building is to really understand it within the context of those two other buildings, the East Wing and the Hirshhorn. Um, and then I think it starts to maybe make sense because it contextualizes the form and the building not as being something completely new, but within another tradition that's working at the same time, that's having a kind of little sort of battle between conservative revisionism and sort of sort of forward agenda. I was going to say that other tradition, I mean, you're as, from what I can see, you're as willing to nod to Egypt as you are to Greece. Oh, and yeah. that's a profoundly radical move in that space. I think that, the, I, I always love saying, we have a subject where, you know, cities were made and architecture is born when we make agriculture cities, you know, all the usual stuff. 10,000 year history, why not use it? <laughs> I mean, we're really, we're steeped in it. Why not use this incredible history? Um, so I'm very happy talking about, you know, having to kind of, you know, make fires to, to the gods outside your city in temples, which become your haloed ground, as I am about, you know, talking about how you make a ceremonial space where citizens express their ideas about their democracy and, and where their, their political leaders have to listen. So... It's, and, you know, what are the forms of those things? Because in a way, you can say that they're disconnected, but actually they're not. They're all kind of rituals, the spaces of rituals in some, some form. They're spaces of dialogue. They're spaces of inquiry. And so in a way, I think that the architecture, which the architectural history that we have has always been along those lines. So in a way, understanding what those motifs are, I think, is really profoundly important. Um, it, it was very funny talking to congressmen at that moment and being able to talk about Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that it was incredible to me that, that the most important monument in Washington is actually an Egyptian obelisk. But yeah. nobody in Washington had kind of fully understood that except the historians. Yeah, there's a travel ban. As <laughs> <laughs> like, Egypt is right in the middle of this. <laughs> so, you know, Karnak Temple, first cathedral probably, right in the middle. You know, you celebrate your first president and general. With, but, with that image. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the thing. The museum opens its doors in September and mm. in November Trump's elected. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard not to view the historical context yeah. as being one that's particularly fraught. And you talk about Africanness being central in the yeah. experience and in what you're building a monument to and a, a place of reflection about, but equally blackness, yeah. um, uh, which is in contemporary America, uh, an increasingly fraught area. How do you balance reverence and radicalism? I, I, I don't know if I can have words to articulate that. I mean, in... Is that a concern? Um, it's always a concern, yeah. It's always a concern. And, and as an architect, you're sort of continually kind of creating gymnastics where you know you can present certain forms which have an incredible reverence and you're sort of cutting them. I always say that you sort of have to almost slightly always vandalize your own work, right? Um, to sort of, to, 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 bring it, to bring it to a different reading. Because, because of the history of forms, that we can evoke certain forms that evoke in people certain um, patterns. And it's amazing how powerful architecture is. We can really do that. Certain forms sort of activate certain things. 
Um, so actually, as an architect, you sort of have to be continually aware. And, and, and what I always say, you have to sort of democratize the form. If, if we live in the 21st century, or the, you know, this beginning, in, you know, we've lived in the 20, 20th century, beginning of the century, we are kind of interested in the flattening of, you know, I think the kind of biggest thing is, is the flattening of that um, privilege. Because um, we're interested in the kind of edification of the most, not the few anymore, as a way to kind of be custodians. We need everybody to kind of elevate. Um, and technology's done it really well with the birth of the internet. But actually, architecture kind of needs to do it. We need to democratize form. It's no longer a privilege of a certain elite who construct it to kind of create the kind of um, the landscape that makes sense. It's now all of our responsibility. That seems like a very good note at which to democratize the conversation and bring <laughs> you in. And I know you're not going to let me down, uh, <laughs> having warned you about the kind of tenor that we expect from you. Um, that's it. When you're too mean, you scare them away and they don't ask questions. Oh. That's my other warning. But we're going to get we a hand. We can talk about anything you want. Any second. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, right in the front row. Um, David, um, I love that TV show you've been interested in. <laughs> where you, um, it was called Green Spaces. Good God, yes. <laughs> a while ago. <laughs> in one episode, you found beauty in a kind of attractive, sorry, interesting London council flat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very famous. This Trellick Tower, yeah. Trellick. Right. Arnie Goldfinger, an immigrant. Who For those at the back who may not have heard the question, it was uh, Trace was encouraging David to remember a previous televisual highlight as his, <laughs> his exalted career back when he Something was I've kind of. Deeply suppressed. <laughs> Did you enjoy that process of commentary on other people's work, or the more you move on in your own career, do you try and resist that? You know, it, Television is very interesting. Um, I, I, was, I was fascinated by the idea of communicating um, much more with a, a public audience. But television is so slow um, that I actually got turned off by it because it was just too slow. It took so long to make, I thought, very little. Um, what's great is that it loops, and, but the internet is so much faster, so I think it's shifted. <laughs> it shifted, so that's, 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 that's great. What's the state of architectural criticism like, given that you would be on the receiving end of a fair bit of it now? Um, is, it, of is it robust? I mean, does it help produce better work, or is it...? Architectural criticism? Yeah. Yeah, I think architectural criticism, when it's constructive, is incredibly useful. I think architectural criticism, when it's just... I think that the sort of the internet has created a kind of closet critic um, that's just a kind of slanderer which is a bit boring, yeah. um, and I think that's not helpful. But I think the, the dialogue that can come from constructive criticism is, is so useful. I, I, I really think it's a, a very important part of the whole thing. Um, just to answer Tracy's kind of... Yeah. Um, I think that this conversation about, for me, um, 
either industrial materials or formed materials or, you know, with that building, what was interesting to me is that we went a full cycle where they cast those materials as modern materials in the world. Full circle, they become politically seen as the horror, you know, concrete, oh no, tear it down. And then we've gone full, and then, you know, people start painting them and panelizing them and, and, it, and it peels off because it kind of doesn't work because uh, the construction is a very different thing. And we've come full circle where actually things like the Barbican in London are now more modern <laughs> and more sought after. Um, and I always say to that, you know, to people, it's, it's interesting how if you wait long enough, <laughs> these materials that actually were thought through really well actually in the end prove themselves within their context. So there's something about that concrete which I think also speaks to a kind of much more geological phenomena that I think is really beautiful, that a building can speak to a kind of geological phenomena which I think that building did. Yeah, this. Oh, oh there's, there's even a microphone over here. We will get a microphone to you in a tick. We'll go here first. Well, we'll start here with the mic and then I promise we'll get a microphone to you. Sorry. Um, hi, David. Um, hi. I saw the museum a couple of months ago and I mm. thought it was very, very brilliant. Um, I guess what moved me when I went in was just how deliberate that space is built and just how it doesn't feel like any museum I've ever been in. And I guess I was hoping you'd remark on the deliberateness of that and, yeah. and why you wanted people to go into that space and feel something because you really do feel stuff and yeah. especially ending up with the contemplative chord at the end, mm -hmm. um, you just can't help but cry. Um, and I, yeah, I guess I was just interested in, in why yeah. you wanted people to have that experience yeah. given that history. No, I mean, um, we made, we challenged a premise which was that we were not going to make a museum like a palace, even a contemporary palace, that it was not going to be, it wasn't going to be driven from an archival strategy of unfolding work in sort of chambers, but that we, we you know, when I made the presentation, I said that this, this story and a narrative museum is so profoundly uh, important that the journey and the, and the way in which the architecture and the content come together is so important that it can't just be a container with something contained in it. It had to be a single experience. So we said, we, we actually proposed the tower. The building is actually a tower. And we said the tower is important because in a way the, the, the sort of, his, the, the concept, the curatorial parties in three parts, history, um, and the history, the sweep of history is deeply fraught and traumatic um, and deeply problematic. So we actually just said, let's play with the narrative of architecture, the crypt, the sort of base, the middle and the top, the attic, but let's make the crypt really the kind of foundation where the history is completely placed. So we buried it 80 feet underground and you really feel that weight and we revealed that section. So when you go into that space and you descend finally to that room, you know you are underground and you know there's a wall that looks like compacted earth deliberately to kind of make you understand that you are in the earth and in the kind of layers of history and in a way the, the content sort of reveals itself in that place. But then the upper chambers are about a certain kind of moment where I said um, the site was so um, charged, it was panoptically charged because from the site you could read a lot of the history that you were, you were looking at was played out on the site as well and is played out in terms of um, the laws that are being made every day in Congress, the presidents that are coming and going just behind you. So I also wanted the building to register the sort of that activity. So if it was horizontal, it would have disappeared in the trees. By being vertical, it actually, the sort of second parts, which is the migration and then the kind of community now, create this dialogue with the place um, and creates a living history. So there are 
nine windows which are sort of mandated in the building, which the curators at first wanted to cover. It was really, I'm not kind of put down curators, great, but it was just like, we need more wall space, get them out. <laughs> um, but, you know, we had an amazing director who really understood it. And actually it's become the, one of the kind of great experiences that you can actually, um, for instance, looking at Washington's monument, you're looking at all the generals, all the generals of color that have been in America. And you realize that there've been so many considering the history of the country. And the window frames that um, moment. And it, people go and are incredibly meditative in that space. And each of the nine windows frames a different moment Dif in the mall. In the mall. So you're yeah. looking at the, the reflecting pool where the sort of Million Mile sort of mar uh, mar march happened. You're looking at Congress um, when you're dealing with certain issues. You're looking at the National Archive because that's the, de the depository. You're looking at the White House. And it's you, you can't actually have a direct view to the White House, but you get these oblique views because of you know working with Secret Service, you can't quite have a direct sightline. <laughs> you, you get a view. You get a view of 1.5 million people not at the inauguration. Like that's a good view to have from there. I, can you yeah. talk briefly so, about anyway. the Corona as well? Just because yeah. I think that's a really gorgeous yeah no uh, so the form, feature of it, from what I understand. So the form really is one that you know, in terms of curators you know, you're not supposed to do, you're not supposed to make a tower because how do you get people up? But actually also by at the end creating the kind of best vistas of the entire landscape, people are drawn, you know, you do it, you go to the contemplative space and then you draw up and then you have the overview of the entire landscape and you understand the construction of the landscape as a, an idea for its citizens. And it beco it's become the destination. So people are doing it and it's kind of creating that destination. So in a way the building has become its own system supporting the curatorial content, but also becoming a kind of register of the location and, and the landscape. And that's really important. So the form of the building, which is the corona that you're referring to, is, was a complicated part of the, uh, the project. It was there from the competition entry, but it wasn't in terms of detail there at the competition. I, I had done a lot of research into saying that the building, that we should try and make a building where the, the very silhouettes spoke to the narrative from day one. So I didn't, and you know, that was one of the reasons also for rejecting the palace form. I didn't want it to just be, there's a building, what's the label, let's go find it. It was about, the form had to, and silhouettes are to do with a sort of uh, reading, a sort of West African reading of form, um, which is to do with where the equator is and light. And so things are not seen, hierarchies are seen through the geometric profile. And if you look at the work of the Dogon right through to the Ashanti, that was the kind of, that's the kind of message. Um, and the reason for referencing that is that um, if you look at the um, data about the community, the African-American community, they come predominantly from Central and West Africa. So I wanted to play a sort of game where, um, and it is a kind of author architecture fantasy of what would happen if you had a parallel history where you didn't have a kind of domination, a dominant kind of su dominant subject kind of relationship. And there'd been an evolution. So there would be this reading of a kind of history of West Africa, silhouettes profiles. Specifically, the, the, the form that's chosen is to do with what's in collections right, right now, but also to do with shrine houses, which memorialize important stories, which is something I knew just growing up in Ghana and, and, and the continent. Um, but then hybridizing that through the experience of those that were taken from the continent and their daily experience of working in the South, of becoming um, people of labor, of wood and of metal, 
and honoring the kind of traditions that were learned then. You know, the metal workers, the early slave metal workers used Yoruba motifs in their work, as well as Corinthian, um, you know, sort of acanthus leaves, learning those kind of skills that were about um, uh, industrialization. You know, the kind of casting process was the beginning of industrialization, which was brought down from the north. But um, a lot of slaves learned those skills to make those buildings in the south that we know, which were actually also brought to Australia, mm. the cast iron tradition. Um, so that in that learning, a lot of um, work was done that started to have kind of language within that cast iron work, which I found extraordinarily interesting. So that hybridization of where you are and how you mutate it was, was fascinating. So I wanted to honor, um, uh, I took the work of a very particular um, uh, freed slave, um, Philip Simmons, and analyzed the way in which he made ornament, the way in which you would analyze a portrait by just looking at the proportions and geometries of all his um, sort of moments where the circular form hits the horizontal or vertical. So in a way, made a mapping that a child could just join the dots to make the ornament. And I wanted to present that as kind of a sort of homage to that, but also to talk about the notion of hybridity and of, uh, of ornament, which is to do with a building ornament that is not to do with decoration, but to do with a sort of way of coding a building with a social message. Mm. So it sort of created the casting of these... Uh, panels which I originally wanted to be bronze to link back to West Africa, but interestingly enough, working for the Smithsonian, your building contract, your building has to last 50 years. <laughs> so you can't do, you know, and actually we found that bronze, even though it's a kind of eternal material, has no modern metric measurement <laughs> which tests it for 50 years. So that's the kind of complexity we was dealing with. So we couldn't use bronze, but we could use aluminium which had testing. And it costs the same amount of money. So our sort of cast aluminium with a kind of bronze alloy coating costs the same as making it out of solid bronze. But we couldn't make it out of bronze for technical reasons. I, which I was, can say that's eating you up. It so. destroyed me. Yeah. No, I can say you're, you're broken by that. It more or the, or destroyed me. Right, modernity. Do I have it right that I think I read that you said that you thought you got about 80% of what you wanted yeah. on the project? That's yeah. pretty good. No, I, that is good, but I want 100%. Yeah, okay, fair enough. 20% yet to come. I think President Trump's going to be very sympathetic. I think it'll be fine. Uh, there is a question over here with a microphone. It's a miracle. Thank you. Yes. You might be pleased to know that sitting on the roof for about 50% of your speech was a willy wagtail, which is an indigenous bird, which Aborigines called a gossip bird, so you've beaten Trump on Twitter. <laughs> but my question is, as a global architect, what your impressions of Melbourne are, because there's obviously a lot of angst in cities about architecture, and particularly Melbourne, um, in terms of you know traditional versus development and what's happening. So, what are your impressions of Melbourne architecturally? I, I hate, be very careful, David. I know. I hate the way um, the the knighthood has kind of cemented this term global architect because I actually hate that word because it's an economic word, um, and I don't think what I'm interested in is a kind of economic. Um, agenda to architecture. So I think that architecture has always been migratory, you know, forms have always been, you know, moving around the world. And if you understand the history of cities, you'll see it. So I think that it's, it's, there's no, there's no irony in um, architects wanting to be in different geographies and, and cultures. So I kind of want to place that. <laughs> it's not really about globalization for me. Um, but um, I, Melbourne, I think that you have the most extraordinary geography. <laughs> you have a profound geography which allows, which is very forgiving of a lot of mistakes. <laughs> wow. 
that done? Can I? Yeah. Can I, no, no, no. <laughs> that, that's magic. <laughs> Sorry. I, no, no. That's the way I could. No, no. That's okay. that's how my wife compliments me as well, <laughs> more or less. Now we probably only have time for one or two more questions. I feel so guilty. These people have my back, so I'm going to turn to you now, and one of you is going to put your hand up. Let's go. No. All right. Sorry. You deserve my back, clearly. No, there's one over here. Thank you, Sir David. Um, welcome you. to Melbourne. Thank you. Accidents and mistakes. Um, chance, um, the history of cities. Cities are something that um, have evolved since the Industrial Revolution and are somewhat outside our, our immediate control. And as architects, we're working around the periphery and talking about beauty and all sorts of things. This avenue beside us is an accident. It was a cattle run into the markets. Now we enjoy a beautifully tree-lined avenue. It's an accident, but it's something that's of great benefit to the city. I'm just curious. Well, firstly, I want to ask why you came to Melbourne. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> it's, it's the, the weather. The, <laughs> Friends. <laughs> yes. Loved ones. Beautiful the projects. Question, the second part of the question is probably more involved. In terms of cities and how we deal with them and live in them, the work of people that um, uh, explore the alternatives to cities and I refer to people like Paul Solari. Oh, um, Utopias. Utopias, the, and someone who's um, looked at evolution of mankind and the city as part of that evolution. Mm -hmm. How relevant do you see those experiments? Um, I think that utopian projects are always, always fascinating. Um, I'm more interested in the kind of the, the rub of the city. And you talk about the accidents and the mistakes. Um, that's one way of framing it, I guess. I think that, you know, as architects, as I said, we are really only in control of a very small part of how the city is made. And that is, you know, a fact that we, you know, we, if, you're, if you know what you're, you know your position in the business, you know, there's a lot of politics, there's all that sort of stuff. But you can't underestimate the power of, of architecture when it is produced and the effect that it has. Um, it has a kind of power, form has a power that I think, even with a kind of horrible neo-capitalist world that we live in where markets trump, you know, sort of a lot of things, when a form manages to get through, it creates a certain transformation of the landscape. And I think that that transformation of the landscape is still incredibly valuable. And actually, if more of us are doing more work to create that kind of transformation, we have more power. <laughs> I actually think we cede power too easily as architects to the, to the power of form, our ability. And I know it's hard, and I know that I'm not trying to say, you know, I don't want to bash architects. It's not an easy thing uh, to do to make, to make buildings. But... It's interesting that I think that when there's... I look at something like Eduardo Sutsumura and, and Alvaro Siza and Fernando Tavra in Portugal, for instance. Three men, it's a shame it's men, but three men who were completely able to shift the conversation about the, 
the importance of structures in the modernization of their country, literally. And I've, I've met politicians and the now president who was so influenced by the work of Caesar in the rebuilding of Chiado in uh, Lisbon, the reconstruction, that he speaks through the lens of architecture in what he's doing governing the country. So I kind of think that you, you underestimate the power that architecture has. Um, and it's not in the quantity, it's in the quality. <laughs> so David, you are undoubtedly at the height of your powers at the moment. How do you want to apply that power then? Accepting, <laughs> accepting what you say, no, but where? Okay, you went sci-fi on me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, you're powerful. Affect change. Where is it? Is it, is it Africa? Is it the work that you're doing there in city building and city making? Or is it what project has piqued your interest and feels like a worthy application of that power? I, no, I don't have... I think at the moment this, in the studio we're working on projects um, in Africa right now. Yes, there are, much, there are more projects now in Africa. But we're also working in America um, and working um, in Europe as well in Germany and in, in, in London. And it's, of course it changes as you do more work, things shift and you, you look at things differently. Um, I think that something like the Smithsonian is such a kind of focused moment that doesn't happen every Thursday. So it's not, I don't expect to kind of fall into something of that kind of magnitude immediately. And I, you know, I, I hope I get to try out Oh, that's the bird. Is, it that, is that the gossip bird? <laughs> no, that's a fire alarm. Oh, that wasn't fun. We're good. Um, so that's, that's, that's a different thing. But in a way, for me, the, the pleasure is not so much in what is the greatest peak, but to be involved, you know, for me, making a library in a community with as much magic as I can, as you call it, power, is as important to me as working on the National Mall. I really sincerely mean that. I think that you can change the lives of somebody who might, might be the president of your country, you know, by just actually focusing on that little thing that means nothing somewhere that could actually have a, a transformatory effect. And Oscar Niemeyer, I was really kind of, um, it was a, I was really lucky to meet him at 94 when I thought he was almost gone and then he lived till 104, which is extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, what a guy. Um, talked about the power of architecture continually when I met him and that, you know, to not lose that belief in architecture. Because, you know, there's a man who started at 27, went into, went into the jungle in a new nation with a government and said, no, 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 we can actually make an image which is going to be profound for your projection in the world. And continually kept doing that um, in places and never lost that belief and was working on projects right to his deathbed because of, because of that belief. And that was incredibly inspirational to me um, and kind of reinforced the kind of beauty and power of our subject, that it's a really beautiful subject and it's a kind of worthy life. Please join me in thanking Sir David Adger. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.